When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. What happens in space in the coming years will revolutionize life on Earth. From weaponized spy satellites orbiting the moon, space metals worth more than most countries' GDP, and people on Mars within the next 10 years, the allure of riches and prestige in space is already leading to contestation and growing tensions between the great powers. But, just like on Earth, does this necessarily mean that there will be war in space? I'm your host, James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and to find out, I welcome Tim Marshall onto the podcast. Tim is the former diplomatic editor at Sky News and a war reporter that has covered conflicts around the world. Tim is also the best-selling author of Prisoners of Geography, a book that has now sold well over two million copies. Now, however, he's turning his attention to the geopolitical space race, analysing the cosmic strides that Russia, China and the US have made and what it means for the rest of us down here on Earth. Enjoy. Hi, Tim. Welcome to Warfare. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've been a massive fan of your work for a long time now, a big fan of Prisoners of Geography. I'm yet to read your new book because it is not out yet, but I'm very excited to get stuck into the topic of it, which is on war in space, or indeed just the the idea of how we grapple with the future of geography, of politics, of economics, of trade, of everything to do with the future of space. So Tim, where should we start? I mean, how long has humanity been trying to to grapple with this issue? Forever. (laughs) The book actually starts uh, around about the Big Bang, but very, very quickly advances, um, because it's not about that sort of science. It, It is essentially a book about international relations, but set in space because that is it is moved to as well now. I'd argue that as, as long as we were conscious, sentient and aware of ourselves, we've looked up at the night sky and asked questions. And of course, we didn't have the answers now. Although there's a wonderful quote by uh, one of the great sci-fi writers, whose name I've forgotten, who said something like, we have got as much idea of what there is out there and understanding of it as a fish has about electricity. So, you know, even with all our amazing advances, that's pretty much where we are. I do mention, again, briefly, there's the cave drawings in Lascaux in France, and I think they're about, is it 12,000 years old? There are theories that they were 
depicting constellations. There's another theory that some of the bones that have been found with markings from 30,000 years ago were marking out the lunar cycle. You know, so we've always always had this fascination and then i will fast forward very quickly to now you start accelerating with the greeks and then the 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 golden years of the islamic learning and then the renaissance and you go through copernicus you get up to newton then you go through einstein and each point we have a better understanding and we can banish the gods and the ghosts as explanations and we can actually better understand the universe. But of course, the negative side of that is that often with scientific advancement comes um, the negative side of advancement in warfare. Absolutely. I suppose this brings us up to, to the 20th century because our modern dabbling with space, not to undersell every single part of every major scientific advancement that has taken place over the last 100 years by calling it dabbling with space, but you know, I'll carry on along that trajectory as well. As a social scientist, you know, maybe, maybe I, can, I can get away with that. We often call it a pseudoscience as it is. I can tell that I'm digging myself a hole, so I'm just going to move away from that as quickly as possible. When we come to this modern understanding of space, and experimentations with how to actually get up there and to operate in space. It goes back, of course, to Nazi Germany and to Werner von Braun. Now, is this something that you go into detail in in the book? Is there always this dark side when it comes hand in hand with trying to understand space? I'm afraid there is. um, Many scientific breakthroughs can be harnessed by the military. I I do go to uh, to von Braun in uh, The Road to the Heavens, is a chapter called... And I actually start just before it, though. You, you canter through all the, the scientists, some of which I've mentioned. And I, then I arrive at Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, this, this Russian guru, this legend that hardly anyone's heard of. We're talking about the 1890s and a self-taught man who left school at 14. And several years before the Kitty Hawk plane flew off with the Wright brothers, he's designing airlocks or space stations and docking and spacesuits. And he's the guy that worked out escape velocity. And so, you know, without him working out just how fast you need to go for how long and therefore how much fuel, Von Braun doesn't get off the ground. So I, I kick off with him and then accelerate forward. Well, one, one second, Tim. That, this, is, this is news to me. So at this period in time, in the late 1800s, yeah. you have a man that can not only understand that we will travel to space at some point in the near yeah. future, but he understands that we'll need space stations, we'll need to dock to them somehow, and he's trying yeah. to figure out all the intricacies of technology that will allow this to happen. Is he alone in this, or is there a broader intellectual movement in this time to try and make this happen? He's almost alone. Wow. I, you know, I, do, I do believe he's one of the great forgotten giants of history. He escaped velocity. You know, Without that, you're not getting out. You know, he worked out the precise ratio of how fast for how long to break the atmosphere. And I don't want to spend too long on him, even though he's, you know, he's an amazing bloke. In Russia, his name is known. I mean, it's not quite Gagarin, but it's known. But outside that, no, unless you're in sort of into, unless you're a rocket scientist. So, yeah, then we very quickly get to the Germans, the Russians and the Americans, because the three of them in the 20s were making rapid advances. Um, Robert Goddard in, in the States, for example, and a man called Kolarov in, in uh, Russia. But von Braun is probably the best of them. And he was the man behind the V2 rocket, which, of course, is problematic. But they're the first ones to actually break 
through the atmosphere. They don't go into orbit, but they, they break out. Well, the, the V2 is the first human-made object to yes. leave the Earth's atmosphere, I believe. Exactly. And and, exactly. and that wasn't a regular thing. This was something... No. It wouldn't need to leave that atmosphere to go and target Holland or to target London. But on no. one specific occasion, it did go over 100 miles up into the air and, and, and right. break that threshold. Past the Kármán line. Uh, not into orbit, but past the Kármán line. And, and yeah, that is a massive first, and that's von Braun. I mean, his story is also amazing. So you get to 1945 and it's all gone horribly wrong, thank goodness. And there's a race on to get him. Obviously, the Russians want him, the Americans want him, but the Americans are closer. They get him and about well, dozens of other top scientists. And of course, this guy oversaw some of the work to death camps because he used to get some of his laborers for the V2 out of these. You know, I mean, he's not a pretty character. Well, but, th thousands of people died in yes. those death camps trying to create the works through which they would develop the V1s and V2s, but also the massive launch sites. Yeah, and that was unacceptable, would have, was deemed to be unacceptable to the American public, and therefore he, his past was covered up. So he goes into the rocket program, and they want him, of course, because of ballistic missile kit, and they found some stuff in the caves. They had no idea how far advanced the, the Germans were. So they take him over, cover up his past and all the rest of them, and he ends up, he ends up narrating a Disney series. <laughs> He's on the well for Walt Disney. But anyway, you know, he is one of the great giants. He's on the front of Time magazine at one point as That's well. That's right, Man of the Year and all that. But Kolarov uh, is doing similar work in, in Russia. And when you get to post-Second World era, there is this straight race between the Soviets and the Americans in order to prove which society was better, which political system could produce the best technology. And the Russians, when they lost that race, pretended they weren't in it. And they were. And it was discovered, well, we all knew anyway, but the, after, after Glasnost and, and the fall of communism, the archives were open and they were absolutely trying to get to the moon first. But the Americans made it. And there's a great quote. It might be Gore Vidal, I'm not sure. He said, Neil Armstrong made a giant leap for mankind and a kick in the balls for NASA. Because pretty soon after the moon landings, when you went back and then you went back, Nixon was thinking... Why are we going back? And the plug was pulled. That is why the funding was reduced. And they went off towards uh, the space shuttle and then the ISS. But uh, now we're going back. Soon. Yeah, going to go back into the first moon orbit in a generation. Yep, next year, hopefully. But if it's anything like HS2, um, <laughs> the, the, the high-speed train that they're trying to build in the UK, then in the, perhaps... You know, a couple of years might slip. But no, at the moment, they're on schedule. A crew of four will go up next year. The uncrewed Artemis One mission has gone already, further than any spacecraft. It's gone, not than a spacecraft, but one designed for crews. Went all the way past the moon, came back. So then there'll be a crew of four next year. And then in 2025, a man and a woman will land on the moon and walk on the moon. And at that point, I'm getting the popcorn out because... I am a nerd. Yeah, me and too. Humans I, I, are returning yeah. to the moon. but the, It's going to be a, a real fundamental moment, I think. The thing that fascinates me about all of this, though, Tim, is that we know that during the Cold War, the, the reason why the money was pumped into these ballistic missiles and the rocketry programs that would take the US to the moon was the fact that there was underpinning military research there. And of course, the big um, global and political opinion win that would come by showing that the US was this preeminent power that could leave Earth first. As we start to see this become in vogue once again and we see money being invested through NASA into the US space program. Can we detach this from 
current geopolitical tensions. Can we detach this from the rise of China? No, completely uh, interrelated. But having said that, it is different to the 60s and 70s. You did mention the military aspect of it. I would say that was secondary to the, the winning that race and proving your system was best. I mean, Kennedy made a speech to Congress in 62, and he absolutely spelt it out. You know, he, he talked about persuading humanity right around the world who were looking at systems, and he actually says which road to travel, meaning is communism the, the answer to the future, or is democratic capitalism? You know, he spelt it out. And I, I do think that was more the driving force, but of course there was the military aspect to it as well. This time, that ideological drive isn't really there. There's a little bit of... You know, the Americans are better than the Chinese or the Chinese are better than the Americans in tech. There is a bit of that. But this time it's driven far more by military and commerce. On the military side, uh, it's because we now know just how incredibly important the satellites are, both to our nuclear early warning systems, to our surveillance, but also to our economies. You know, if they all crash tomorrow, don't bother going to work because nothing's going to work. And the more that is the case, then the more they will become part of critical infrastructure. And the more that's the case, the more the temptation will be to defend them. Because already, and I know you know some of this stuff, there's already, you can dazzle them momentarily. You can blind them by going burning through the lens. You can crash into them uh, with another satellite. It is thought the Russians have testified something in space. It's pretty murky. The direct ascent attacks have been done by against their own satellites as a test by the Americans, the Chinese, the Russians. That's satellite-to-satellite satellite weaponry, isn't it? The ability to destroy... Or to, no? No. Sorry. The direct ascent attack. Mm. India's done this. China, Russia, and America. They have launched a missile from the Earth, big ballistic missile, ah. and they have hit one of their own satellites to test, can they do this? Yes, they can. And, of course, if you can do that to someone, your own satellite... It follows, you can do it to someone else's. So that's the direct ascent from Earth, and that's already with us. The satellite to satellite, it's not theoretical, it's doable. So already, the Americans and the Russians, and I assume the Chinese, have got the technology where from Earth you can fire energy laser and dazzle the satellite. So you either dazzle its lens so that it can't see for X amount of time, or you actually go for the computer chips and the motors and you can burn it out, which means you blind it. It's thought this has happened, which I'll come to briefly in a moment. What is also theoretically possible is that you can crash one satellite into another. The Russians have tested something. One satellite, little straight out of Austin Powers, or James Bond if you're a bit older, you know, something <laughs> opens... Little thing peeps out, bang, they fired something. No one's quite sure what it was. So briefly on last year's invasion of Ukraine, and this is actually quite an important point. Some of the internet went down because the base stations were hit by missiles and some cyber attacks in Irpin, in the region of Irpin in Ukraine. which quite a big area, and the, the internet went down completely. Elon Musk flew in thousands of Starlink terminals, connected them to his Starlink satellites up above, got them back online, called your loved ones, try and see what's going on, get out of town, whatever it is you want to do. But, of course, the Ukraine military used them as well to use their drones to target Russian soldiers and kill them. At which point the Russians issued, without mentioning Starlink, they issued this thing about you're playing with fire if you use civilian infrastructure, there could be retaliation. And it's thought they did try to dazzle Musk's 
uh, starlings. So that's where we're at now. It is not science fiction. It's not the future. We're there to ride. And then, of course, this had a massive impact on how Elon Musk then used Starlink. Because one thing about these systems is that they don't respect the territorial boundaries, I suppose a bit like Putin, of sovereign nation states. And so Musk had to try and put in place some sort of geofencing to stop these satellites from being used to then spy on and gather intelligence over Russian territory. It's all very murky. It is probable the Russians tried to dazzle it. And it is said somehow they evaded it. I don't know if they just moved it. It's a constellation of small satellites that all operate together in a network and move together. It just it threw up a whole bunch of questions. And this hopefully might bring us to law. Not just law, but narrative and understanding and parameters on satellites in general. Some of them are used by the major powers as part of their nuclear early warning systems. There is already satellites that have got grappling arms that can grapple and get hold of a satellite to clean it out of the debris of space. That's a good thing because it's a defunct satellite. Throw it into the atmosphere, let it burn up, fine. But if you can do that, you can creep up behind another satellite, which happens to be my nuclear early warning system. And the moment I see you doing that, which would be 20 hours away, I'm going to get very nervous and I'm going to be like, what the hell are you doing? But there's no law about you coming into my orbit. And there's no law about how close your satellite can be to mine. So that's an issue. Then I noticed that NATO reworded something about Articles 5 and 6. And they reworded it along the lines of threats to and from space and above sovereign territory. But they leave it loose as to what above sovereign territory is. I mean, is it the 60-mile mark? Is it the 80-mile mark? The Kármán line? And people have different definitions of what space is. Here's the scenario that I'll make up. The Russians get so mad that they think, we're going to hit it. And they hit Musk's satellite system, which is a big American company, very quite useful to the American economy. They hit it while it's up above, say, the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's not above a NATO country. So at that point, NATO leaves itself enough wiggle room. Well, we're not going to do anything about that. Okay, now he hits it when it's above America. Ooh, not so sure about that. So all this stuff has now arrived for us to think about and talk about and make decisions on. And yet, I don't really think there's much of that discussion going on. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's a really interesting discussion to have, especially as we're still in the wake of these high-altitude Chinese spy balloons that have crossed mm. Central and North America. Do we start to say that uh, these are flying in, in international territory? Or, as we've seen, the US then chooses to shoot these down while they're still technically in the geographical bounds. How do we solve this? The Chinese wouldn't agree with this, but I'm pretty sure that the Americans were on solid international legal grounds because it was over sovereign territory. The Chinese can call force majeure. You know, it's an act of nature. It wasn't their fault. You know, you really shouldn't have shot it down. I think the Americans are on very solid ground in shooting it down over their sovereign territory. But there's all sorts of scenarios for this as well. Are you going to shoot it down when it's on its way? When it's not over? No, you can't do that. Theoretically, an act of war. It's probable the spy balloon, you look at what they think was on it, as well as propellers and a rudder. I don't think for a second it drifted over those American nuclear silo bases by mistake. I'd have to agree. America's a very big country. Yeah. <laughs> it's probable it had on it <clears throat> stuff that could send the whatever it was gathering, and it looks like communication intercepts. I mean, there was, there was a camera as well, but most of it was comms. They'd probably gather it all and then send it up to a satellite at the right moment. Fine, okay, you know, it's part of a jigsaw. Pe people kind of think, oh, what would they possibly see? They're just looking. Well, it's part of a jigsaw. That's what they're after. How many people are going in and out of that base in cars over a two-hour period? Who? So get a little piece of the jigsaw for the bigger picture. Supposing, theoretically, something of real national security importance, I mean, top-level stuff, by sheer coincidence was happening when it was over, and they've captured it, but they know it ain't going to um, transmit 
for another hour, but then it bobs out off to sea with its propeller and its rudder, and it's in international territory waters. At that point, you have a decision to make. Now, I know this is all theoretical, and you know there's probably there's probably reasons why it wouldn't happen. That's not really the point. The point is that there are these scenarios now because of the tech, and we're in pretty much uncharted territory. So how do we look forwards, and how do we start to, to manage this problem? Because when we look to space, I think there's... The US sent a pretty clear geographical message to him when it came to the moon. They planted a flag on it. Now, I'm not entirely sure that means that the moon <laughs> is US territory or a, or a new state that they're trying to build there, at least not yet, anyway. No. But what sort of legal framework do we have... Where are we looking to to get solutions? Are we looking to to UNCLOS, so the United Nations Conventions on the Law of the Sea? Is that the kind of area we're trying to get inspiration from to manage these growing disputes and the anarchy in space? It is, but I would refer my right honourable friend (laughs) to the fact that Turkey hasn't signed UNCLOS. I'm not sure the United States has. Well, no, the United States doesn't sign anything. No. That is just one of those things, sadly. Yeah. So you're right as a, a framework... United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS, is a pretty useful document because we don't have a legally accepted framework. Now, at this point, people start shouting at your podcast and they say, what about the um, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967? What about the Moon Treaty of 70-whatever? Fine, they are also there with some useful paragraphs in them, but they were drawn up 50, 60 years ago. They do not take into account modern technology. Outer Space Treaty says you won't have weapons of mass destruction out in space. Okay, I won't shoot at your satellite from my satellite with a nuclear weapon. Fine, but I will shoot at it with a laser and knock it out. And there's nothing that says we're not supposed to put these weapons up there. Well, there is other stuff about the militarization of space. Again, I would point you to the Antarctic Treaty. Russia's perspective on this is no military. America's perspective on the agreement is that it means non-aggressive military. So you can have some military, but as long as they're not aggressive. Hence why there are military people up up in space, as long as they're not doing military things. So all these things are swirling around and not nailed down. Moon Treaty wasn't really ratified at all, forget it. Where it's useful is it does talk about space is is for the common good of humankind. It cannot be appropriated on a sovereign level. You know, you cannot plant your flag and say, this is now America. And that's generally agreed, but I'll bring it right up to date. Yeah, it's generally agreed, but that's just language. I mean, how are you going to enforce it? So we get to the Artemis Accords now. 23 countries have signed them. The UK, I think Nigeria, France, UAE, Israel, Japan, Canada. These are a series of bilateral agreements between the US and whoever signs. So there's 22 countries so far who sign up for America's view of this. One of the accords is the best example. It states that you can have not spheres of interest, which is what I think it actually says, just it says it in difference. Safety zones. You can have safety zones. So I have spent hundreds of millions, possibly billions of dollars in getting there with my commercial company in order to mine the moon, which is going to be happening in a few years' time. Rare earth metals, pressures, silicon, you name it, lithium, it's all there, helium-3. Quite understandably, I think I should be able to say, we need a safety zone around here that can't be interfered with. It would be dangerous for everybody. It's only for your own good, you know. But again, it actually states you'd say how wide it is. So you've declared your safety zone, you're busy digging away, you've spent all that money in your investment, and the Russians or somebody think, ooh, excellent, that's where we need to go. They land, 
Half a mile away, get the shovel and spade out. What are you going to say? Says on the Artemis Accords. And they're going to say, well, we didn't sign them. You're not cooperating with us. China will say, yeah, well, NASA's not allowed to cooperate with us under the Wolf Amendment, if it went through Congress. So you and whose army? You know, that's just a colourful way of saying we don't really have the laws. So we need them. We also urgently need uh, a space situational awareness globally agreed where we are all tracking the debris and we're all tracking where the satellites are and we're all letting each other know where they are and what they're doing, which means that when one of them is doing something unexpected, you have a framework. We say, hang on, we all agreed X. I'm going to ring you up and say, why are you doing Y? At the moment, we don't have that framework. It sounds wonderfully progressive and utopian. Do you think that this is a realistic prospect for our future, Tim? Or, or what does the future really look like? Are we going to start seeing an arms race in space? Will we have every great power go and try and visit the moon, not only to, to take those vital minerals from the, the place itself, but to establish their own military presence? Certainly, I think the former will happen. The big three, Russia, China, the US. I mean, the US and Artemis plans, as we said, back up in two years, and then a moon base hopefully being constructed 2032 via a space station gateway. That's probably optimistic, but only about a couple of years. China and Russia as a joint enterprise, similar timeline. You know, and they're not going there just because the views are so good. They're going there to dig up the stuff and as a launch pad to Mars as well. Within Artemis, China, Russia as a junior partner, is offering its services. If you want to join us, you know, we'll get involved. The 23 Artemis countries, I think that will grow. There'll be more of them. And yeah, they're going, and it will be a joint enterprise. For example, the Japanese, uh, Toyota, I think it is, have spent millions, probably more. They're developing a, a sealed space buggy. So instead of those great lunar buggies that we saw uh, open top, wearing your spacesuit, driving around on them in the 60s, 70s, this will be sealed. You can take your spacesuit off inside. They're not spending all that money for no reason. They're going up there as a company. Japan is going up there as part of the Artemis Accords. They're all going up there for mostly commercial reasons. And more and more countries will try and get involved. Let's hope it's for the good of humankind. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of positive stuff, potential cheap energy, the stuff we need for 21st century technology, including 21st century renewable technology, solar panels. You know, there's all sorts of positive things, but there's also that hard commercial aspect, which then possibly needs defending if you're getting nervous. Because if it becomes so important to a country's economy, you're not just going to leave it all up there. You're going to put some sort of defensive measures. Now, you know, I'm not talking about a massive war in space. I'm talking about tensions in space mirroring the ones that are here. So come to the military aspect, because I'm confident about the commercial aspect. There's already an arms race with the direct descent attack, the satellite attacks, the uh, uh, tests that have been. As the Russians have got something that nobody's quite sure what it is. Everybody is working on dazzling laser energy, stuff. Everybody already tries to listen in to the comms of the satellites. Everybody already tries to make them unhackable uh, from cyber attacks. So all that sort of stuff is, is already happening. And when directed energy weapons become the norm, and let's face it, instead of spending $350,000 on a missile, I'll spend $5 on a burst of electricity. Given the history of humanity, you know, I just think it's inevitable that it will go up there. I mean, there's a line in the book, something along the lines of, if my arrows go further than yours, brackets, see Agincourt for details, 
you know, the longbow of the English archers went much, much further. And the French didn't really realise that's how. And so when they unleashed them, I think the French army was twice the size of the English army, but they lost badly at Agincourt because they didn't realise they had this new weaponry. Consequently, they decided we better have some better shields whilst we work on our longer range. I just don't see how it's different now than then. Sadly. I, I Sadly, I think I have to agree with you, Tim. We're going to have that age-old offensive-defensive balance and the sparring with one another, testing new technologies, yeah. and all of those same tensions that you've outlined in so many of your other books as well are here on Earth. Thank you. All the more reason why, you know, we need to have space situational awareness agreements, defined laws, and cooperation. And I certainly, I wish Congress would scrap the Wolf Amendment and allow a degree of cooperation with China. I understand that the fear is, if we cooperate with them, they'll just steal all, I say we, the Americans, they'll just steal all the intellectual property. I mean, they have a very long history of stealing intellectual property. You know, it's, it's a genuine concern. But surely there are ways to build bridges with China. Because if you remember the Cold War, one of the ways in which they kept the lines of communication open was Soyuz and Apollo cooperating. There was the great handshake in space when they docked and, and, the, and the astronauts went through to each other. We need, at the scientific level, those connections. So even when detente's not going so well, we've still got bridges. And the wonderful thing is that there's a whole relatively new field of international relations that is working on this, which is called astropolitics, yeah. um, which I suppose your book nicely ties into. I interviewed who I regard as the doyen of astropolitics, and I'm sure there'd be lots of other professors that would gnash their teeth when they hear his name, Everett Dolman. Um, he's a professor at the US War College, and he has this maxim, nerds like us, and that's a compliment, by the way. I appreciate it. Okay. Nerds like us may be aware of Halford Mackinder's Heartland Theory, which I think is unprovable, but it's kind of interesting to talk about, but I never took much notice of it because, prove it. Dolman took that and put it into space and said, uh, it's longer than this, but he who controls low Earth orbit controls the Earth, by which he means if one country did, and they won't, but it also means why everybody has to be there to make sure that one doesn't. If one country did control low Earth orbit, it would control all the satellites. If it controls all the satellites, it's the only one that can see anything. Everyone else is blind. Um, they're in charge of everything. And they could theoretically say who can and who cannot go through the satellite belt and out into space. You know, it, it's a useful maxim. And I, I, sorry, you just reminded me of it because I, I believe he's the doyen of um, astropoliticians, but uh, other astropolitical thinkers, I'm sure, would disagree. Well, there is an entire active field out there, and I urge our listeners to go and check it out. And also to check out your new book, Tim. Tell us, what is its title? When is it out? Oh, I'm glad you asked me that. Oh, look, I happen to have a copy here. Oh, it's called The Future of Geography. It builds... I, I had a couple of other books they did okay one was called prisoners of geography again how because of geopolitics you know you look at distance time supply routes mountains oceans rivers terrain how does this help or restrict a country and how does it help us better understand what they can and can't do and therefore their decision making i'm not a determinist it is one of the determining factors not a geographic determinist i should say so that i've taken that template as the core of the book and stuck it into Future Geography, which, as you asked, is out on April the 27th. 
Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much for your time, and I can't wait to read the book. Thank you, James. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.